Hi, and welcome to The Breakdown, your short, sweet, and digestible guide to the public policy issues facing Texas and the country today. I'm your host, Brian Phillips, with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. For more information on today's topic and just about any issue that you read about or tweet about or gather around the water cooler to discuss, uh, you can find all of those issues, all the things that TPPF likes to talk about on those issues at TexasPolicy.com. Today we're going to talk about the number one issue in Texas, the most important issue uh, uh, to to voters in Texas: immigration and border security. Now, uh, and that's just not that's not just my opinion. Um, in fact, every single public poll that I've ever seen over the last four years, save a few months during the opening of the pandemic, and certainly any poll that we've done here at, at Texas Public Policy Foundation over the last couple of years, um, has shown that immigration and border security is the number one issue for Texans, and that of course goes left, right, and center. Um, and and by double digits. So to talk about that issue today, there's a, there's a lot of debate going on right now uh, at the Texas Capitol. There's several bills, and we're going to talk about those today. With me to talk about that is our is TPPF's chief of intelligence and research and our director for Texas identity, Josh Trevino. Uh, Josh recently testified during a debate over a number of the border security bills that we'll talk about today, um, making their way through the Capitol. So thank you, Josh, for being on Brian's breakdown today. Thanks, Brian. Okay, so uh, just go right to my lead-in. It is the number one issue. I'm actually pretty fascinated by this because you know I've done a lot of polling, and you see issues fluctuate by you know how much the media pays attention to it, to you know elections coming up, and what are the candidates talking about. And in Texas, I'm not talking nationally, but in Texas, border security and immigration is always, always, always number one. Oh yeah. Uh, why is that? I mean, partly it's a function, and and that's the right question to begin with. Partly it's a function of just the sheer length of our international border. Mm. Uh, I believe we have the longest international border of any state. Uh, somebody on the internet will fact check me on that, but that ninety nine percent sure <laughs> I think that's, that's right. That's that's the case. Uh, you know, and and so and so that plays into it. Obviously, Texas also has a fairly unique history uh, as a frontier area. It was a frontier area when the Spanish uh, were settling it in the eighteenth century. It continues to be uh, literally a frontier area now. Uh, now that it's on the U.S.-Mexico border, mm-hmm. uh, and then and then the third reason I would say that it's continually at the top of the list of concerns, uh, not just for Texas conservatives or for Texas Republicans, but for Texans. Period, uh, is because of the existential nature of the question. Texans uh, are not against migration; they're not against uh, immigrants uh, as as such. Obviously, uh, that's the case. You can go to any you know significant community in Texas, and you can see people from other places, whether they're from Vietnam or California. Right now, uh, Texas is a very open state. But concurrent with that, Texans understand that the issue of who you allow to become part of your political community, your polity writ large, mm-hmm. is literally an existential question. And so if you think about, you know, there's really three things that any political community needs to control. One is going to be uh, the understanding of its past, which is history and heritage. The other is going to be uh, the shaping of the present, which is really going to be education and education reform, which is also a foundation subject that you've talked about many times. And then uh, the third item is determining what the future is going to look like, which really gets into immigration, who joins your community and on what terms. Mm -hmm. The reality is that Texans understand, as I think most Americans understand too, that if you have no say over who becomes part of your political community, you don't really rule yourself. Mm -hmm. You're not really truly a sovereign and self-governing republic as conceived by either the American or Texas founders. And I think that's fundamentally why it matters. Now, layered on top of that all 
is the incredible level of dysfunction, criminality, and violence that's currently coming from Mexico right now. So you take this very grave and real philosophical concern that's felt and understood, I think, by the general population, and then you add to it the immediacy and the physicality and the realness of the violence uh, that is present on the other side of the border and frequently comes across to our side of the border, and it just becomes outstandingly compelling. So that's what I want to kind of dig into next is, so it is true that the that, that the plurality, I guess, of Texans, it's not quite a majority, we'll say this is number one issue, mm-hmm. but then what are the issues within the issues, right? Like, what, are the, what is the debate? If we all agree that immigration and border security, it's not because we all agree that the border should be shut down or that the border should be open. It's actually, right. I mean, and, and some of the research that we've done, some of the polling and, and value laddering research that we've done shows that, like, even though you have a group of people who believe it's the number one issue, depending on where you stand um, on that issue, you, your opinion of what we should do about it diverges almost immediately it does and so where take us through you know what you think like the the real debate over the issues are and kind of where people um you know believe this issue like where where where, what are the real problems and what are the solutions for border security yeah one of the interesting things about the topic is that it really reveals your priors right really it really exposes uh kind of what you value and where you stand in terms of your ideas of what uh these very fundamental questions look like democracy patriotism community Mm and so on and so and so you do have this variety of views, even on the right, uh, in prescriptions on what to do about border security and immigration writ large. Uh, there is a cohort, uh, you know, many of our friends on the left who sincerely hold to this, um, what I'll describe out of charity. Uh, I don't actually agree with this, but uh, out of charity, I'll describe it as sort of a universalist view of mankind, that everyone has a right to come to the United States, everyone has a right to seek a better life and to have a better life here in the United States. Uh, and therefore, there is no moral basis for denying entry uh, into Texas or the United States or anywhere else. Mm-hmm. I fundamentally disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's quite wrong, but it is adhered to by a lot of individuals. And certainly those of us who showed up for the HB 20 testimony got to hear from hundreds of them uh, on that evening. Uh, even on the right, though, uh, you do have uh, individuals who believe in what I'll describe as market-based solutions, uh, who fundamentally see uh, the issues at the border as essentially a labor market supply issue. Uh, I've been very sympathetic to this view myself in the past. Uh, and then you have a, another group, uh, and, and I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but I'm happy to dig in wherever you want, Brian. Sure. Uh, on this, uh, and this is where I personally stand, it's where the foundation is right now, uh, who believes that a security-first approach uh, is really what's needed. I'm not sure that that was the case perhaps a decade ago, perhaps 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. I am sure it's the case now, and that is 100% because of what's happening in Mexico. Yep, absolutely. And and because of uh, the, the security situation at the border is so much different than it was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about a little bit about um, about why that is. But um, And before we get into what's going on in the Texas legislature, because and I really want to set that up. Um, you've done a lot of, I mean, you, you've visited Mexico several times in the mm-hmm. last couple of months. You've, you've certainly done a lot of research um, on the relationship between Texas and Mexico over the last decades and how that's changed over maybe even the last four or five years. Can you give us, to your, you know, to the best of your knowledge and you know, as, as bumper stickery as you possibly can, um, kind, of a, kind of an overview. Yeah. yeah, we only have so much time on the podcast. But, um, uh, but, but give us an overview of, of maybe kind of where we're coming from with the Texas-Mexico relationship relationship and where we are now. Texas has always been frontier territory for Mexico. Uh, and that was true, I think I mentioned initially, when, when uh, Texas was first settled by the Spanish in the 18th century. Uh, and that continues to this day. Um, my friend Don Frazier over at Shriner University at the Texas Center there likes to point out that Texas was the only organically multicultural frontier of the 19th century in the United States. Uh, and that, that condition uh, pertains and continues today. So what I would argue that we're seeing vis-a-vis Texas and Mexico right now uh, is not something necessarily new in history. 
the idea of Texas as uh, sort of a buffer between Mexico and the rest of the United States subject to Mexican disorder and violence is a theme that you see crop up again and again in both the 19th and 20th centuries. Now, we did take a holiday from history, so to speak, from about 1920 through about the last decade uh, in which Mexico was reasonably peaceful, reasonably well-governed. You have to put it in context. Mm -hmm. It was never well-governed. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, I, I remember growing up with a border that was, that was uh, relatively peaceful. You could cross over to have lunch, to shop, mm -hmm. uh, to do all sorts of things. Now, going to Matamoros for a tummy tuck, it's not a current concern for me, by the way, <laughs> but it'll get half your party killed, literally. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so we, we just now see something that is very different within living memory, but not so different within historical memory. And that's something to keep in mind. So um, in terms of uh, you know where we are now, what, what has the Texas-Mexico relationship, how has that contributed to the, the public safety issues that we're seeing on the border right now. Let's just talk about those, for example. We'll get into sort of the immigration problems and the border crossing sure. uh, here, in, here in a little bit. But what do you think? I mean, is there there seems to be some inflamed uh, rhetoric that is now bubbling up both for, on both sides of the border, really, about right. about you know who's to blame or why, you know who, how much cooperation should happen uh, between uh, Texas and Mexico. Um, you know, how much of that is contributing to the, the chaos that's going on down there? The rhetoric from the Mexican side is is obviously unhelpful. Uh, right now, uh, the, the the Mexican president is a left populist, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. He goes by AMLO, his initials, uh, who is very invested in sort of this old line Mexican nationalism uh, that's very anti-American and it's explicitly anti-Texan. Uh, he's never had anything good to say about the Texans, and and it's because he adheres to this sort of Mexican nationalist narrative that the Texans stole Texas. <laughs> you can unpeel that uh, on your own time. Uh, Still and angry about that. Still, you no, know, still angry about that, uh, and, and and certainly, you know, if you go to the uh, Museo Nacional de Historia in, in, in Chapultepec, uh, in Mexico City, you'll see that narrative uh, unfolding that the United States sent in. This is this this is literally on some of the signage there. Sent in colonists uh, with the intent of stealing Texas. Uh, set aside the preposterousness of the historical narrative, it's real and present uh, in the current day. And so and so you have this on the other side. You know, I would argue that the Americans writ large, uh, and not that our policy has been perfect by any stretch. But the American writ, writ, writ large have extended a tremendous amount of grace and forbearance to the Mexican side, particularly across the past five to 10 years. Uh, Mexico has a series of responsibilities, uh, both moral responsibilities, prudential responsibilities, and also under international law to not allow its territory to fall under the sovereignty of other actors, to not allow its territory to be used as a base to attack its neighbors. And it has done all those things. Uh, we would argue, unfortunately, willingly, uh, mm -hmm. especially with the current Mexican regime. And so when you look at the rhetoric and how it's heated up, and on the U.S. side, it is absolutely heated up, particularly in the past 60 days, I really interpret what's happening on the U.S. side as a long delayed and frankly overdue reaction, recognizing what's been going on south of the border. Okay. So now I want to get into what everybody, the, the, the typical conversation that happens sure. um, around this issue. Um, and I'll do the bumper sticker version because everyone knows the story and the narrative already, which is that we had largely, um, depending on how you look at it, the, uh, the most secure border that we've ever had in a long time at the end of the Trump administration. And that's probably just because we had a very unsecure border uh, up until he 
he started to to do some things with Title Forty Two and remain in Mexico and sure. all those sort of things. Yeah. So we'll we'll go ahead and give him the benefit of the doubt that they had the most secure border in history, but it certainly is not that way now. Almost literally to the day that Biden got into the administration, he reversed some of the biggest decisions uh, that the Trump administration had had made on immigration and yeah. almost single handedly turned this into a massive crisis. We see, you know, in a calendar year, we had over two million border encounters of people coming across, which is more than ever we've ever had in any 12-month period in history, um, uh, and not to mention all of the gotaways and others that, that have gone through. So we've created this massive crisis, right? Right. So skip forward. So now, you know, Texas is looking at this. Governor Abbott is looking at this. You know, the leaders and our policymakers in Texas are watching this happen, and, and they're asking for help. They're doing whatever it is that they're supposed to be doing to say, federal government, do your job, you know, send in more resources, hire more people, we need more security. And of course, n- none of that's coming. That's none right. of that's going to happen. None of it. Yeah. Um, and so what it feels like now, and you you tell me, because you, you talk to folks up at the Capitol and you obviously have testified up there on these bills and, and helped craft some of these bills and some of these mm-hmm. legislation, is the feeling then that they have, that, that there has finally been an acceptance after, you know, last couple of years that the help is not coming, Biden's not going to do his job. And so we as Texas policymakers have to step up and figure out what it is that we can do within the bounds of the law, within the bounds of the Constitution. What can we do in Texas in terms of protecting our sovereignty, protecting our borders, protecting our communities? Take us through a little bit of that decision process yeah. um, uh, that, that happened, because I know it was very, I mean, it's not like they just decided one day, hey, we need some bills and we're going to go secure our border. There's a process involved here in making sure that these things will not only be the right policy, but also stand up to constitutional muster. And I know you know a lot about that. Yeah, uh, thank you. Now, the I think I think that when we look back on this, probably in, in a year or two, and hopefully when a lot of this good legislation has been passed, uh, that there will be a case study and kind of the positive role that, you know, good lawmakers and good think tanks like the foundation can actually play in transforming the perception of policy. Uh, you know, I will say that that uh, just over six months ago, when Foundation President Greg Sindelar went to Mexico City, delivered a keynote address at the American Society of Mexico's 80th anniversary gala, calling for a uh, Texas invasion declaration vis-a-vis Mexico, uh, which, which strangely enough, uh, was was popular in the room. Uh, <laughs> I was I was surprised to see that. We can talk about that if you want to. Um, but 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 at we'll that get point, to invasion for sure. Not going to leave that one. No, 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 just no, no, for no, our no listeners problem. to know. But just, a, but just as an example, um, uh, at, at that point, I would argue in, in September 2022, that was an out there idea. That was not in kind of the window of political possibility. It was somewhere over here. Now, as you and I are talking uh, in in kind of the latter half of April 2023, it is squarely within the conversation. Mm-hmm. And a few things have happened uh, to make it possible. One, obviously, is uh, DC's just just incredible chronic inaction and really contempt uh, for requests for help by um, uh, the Texas public and the state of Texas. And the other is uh, kind of the Mexican regime uh, feeling more and more unleashed uh, to say and do things that were candidly unthinkable before. Mm. And Texas lawmakers, uh, I think, rationally have responded to that. And I am incredibly heartened uh, at the things that they are willing to consider and contemplate in a thoughtful and considered way um, that they weren't that they weren't before. And now we're going to get into that because that's what we do here on The Breakdown is we try to get into the weeds so people know like sure. what these bills and what this legislation uh, really does. The one, the bill that seems to make all the headlines, the one that maybe is the most controversial, but also is really the most reasonable response to the border security situation, um, I think is, is HB 20. And mm-hmm. this is the one that creates the Border Protection Unit. I mean, this is the one that directly responds to we don't have the resources we need to protect these communities coming from the federal government. So we in Texas 
crisis now need to start creating a new unit. We need to be funding it and resourcing it and, and, and hiring people to come and, and be the people who are going to enforce the law uh, in these communities. So talk to us about HB 20. I know this was one of the ones that you um, uh, testified on on the other day. So take us through that bill and kind of what the intent is and what you hope the, the outcome will be. Yeah, HB 20 obviously has gotten a lot of the uh, the, the stray voltage from the left, uh, I think is how I'll put it. It's the one that uh, that, the, that the left and kind of the, the, the Texas Democrats seem to be willing to go to the map for because it does specifically create this border protection unit. Uh, I think that legitimately recognizes that border protection and the crisis at the border is a unique security and law enforcement concern for the state of Texas uh, that requires a dedicated apparatus. Hitherto, under Operation Lone Star, uh, which we're supportive of, uh, by the way, so we're glad Governor Abbott saw fit to do it. It was the right thing to do. But it draws upon resources that are either not really designed for border protection, for example, DPS, uh, or um, resources that are easily federalizable, like the Texas National Guard. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the long run, you cannot have DPS and or the Texas National Guard focused upon border security 24 Seven. Right. Uh, it's a legitimate mission for them, don't get me wrong, but they're not forces that are designed for it. And in the case of the Guard, of course, the feds can take them away in a heartbeat. So to have this border protection unit that HB 20 envisions is a necessary and I think directed um, uh, bureaucratic act, uh, which I say in, in a non-judgmental way, it just it literally is, uh, that, uh, that focuses the resources and the attention of the state of Texas on exactly the right place. Right. So you've answered the question of, should we do it? Mm -hmm. um, but there's also been thoughtful discussion about, can we do it? Yeah. Right? And this is something um, that I know our legislators have thought a lot about, which is everyone just assumes, or you hear this refrain all the time, that immigration and border security is a federal uh, authority. But the reality is, is that Texas absolutely does retain the rights and sovereignty and the ability yes. to, to, to have a force to protect it from, uh, you know, or, or to enforce border security and immigration laws. T tell us a little bit about the legal side of things that allows Texas to do that. I mentioned earlier kind of the holiday from history that Texas has been able to take since basically 1920 when Mexican violence, the last iteration of Mexican violence on the border really died down. Uh, in that interim, that basically centuries interim, uh, in the United States, governance has moved very far away from the founders' vision of uh, what the actual legitimate state, state powers of self-defense are. Now, there's no question but that the founders of the Constitution and the framers intended for the federal government to have primary responsibility for national defense and the making of citizens. Um, but it does not follow from that that they actually left states defenseless. Uh, states are not simply you know, waiting for Washington, D.C. for permission to exercise the ordinary plenary powers that they possess under both the 10th Amendment and under Article One, Section 10 of the Constitution, which mm. allows for a state declaration of invasion. Um, HB 20 operationalizes uh, a lot of those powers that have effectively gone unused. There's a Supreme Court case that I must mention here, mm -hmm. um, 2012's Arizona versus the United States, uh, which was adjudicated, we believe incorrectly, under a left-leaning Supreme Court uh, at the time that essentially kicked states entirely out of anything resembling immigration enforcement to the point where you couldn't even ask like citizenship status, mm. which, is, which is preposterous. Mm. Uh, uh, by the way, um, you know, one thing that we've heard time and again from our friends on the left is that because things like HB 20 and then some of the other bills that we're talking about, uh, 1600 in particular, challenge uh, uh, that, that 2012 Supreme Court of the United States decision, that they're somehow unconstitutional. It's incorrect. Uh, the court discerns constitutionality, does not create constitutionality. Mm -hmm. And the Texas legislature is well within its rights to propose a, to our mind, correct theory of constitutionality and apply it vis-a-vis -vis the border. And that's exactly what they're doing. And so that's a good seg segue into 1600, HB 1600, which is the other big bill that, that was debated uh, uh, last week. Um, 
I'll be honest, I was shocked and surprised to, to learn that this wasn't already the law, that, yeah. that, there is, that this creates a state offense for essentially illegal immigration into Absolutely. the state. Yes, and does. that wasn't a thing. We don't have any, there's no statute in, in the state that says that coming into this country uh, illegally is a state offense. Um, tell us maybe why that wasn't the case and what, what happened, should this law pass, what does that actually mean in terms of enforcement? Then? H- HB 1600 and its, its center counterpart, which I think is 2424. We'll double check that. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to, to my yeah, mind, twenty four, twenty four. To my mind, are the most transformative uh, bills uh, vis-a-vis the border and the legislature. Very supportive of HB twenty, and we'll talk about eighteen eighty four in a second. But just the creation of a state offense for illegal entry across an international border to Texas is genuinely transformative because it's an assertion of state power that sets up the arguments and the adjudication that we've just talked about vis-a-vis Arizona versus U.S vis-a-vis state plenary powers under the 10th Amendment in Article 1, Section 10. And that, I think, uh, is the one, is, is the kind of the pair of bills that have the most potential to have genuine transformative effects. Now, now to your question, the reason that it wasn't already a state offense is because really until the last generation, you could trust the federal government to do its job. <laughs> and so there wasn't a need for it, candidly. Now there's a need. Now we know that Washington, D.C. is not going to protect the states in the union, which I think raises a whole raft mm-hmm. of other constitutional questions. But since it's not going to do that, the state must now step up. And the good news is that it can. So you've got HB 20, which creates the Border Protection Unit, which is essentially the resources and the personnel and all of that to enforce the law um, in in border regions, in the border community. You've got HB 1600 uh, and SB 2424 in the House and Senate, the ones that create a state uh, a violation for illegal immigration, which opens up all kinds of new authority for the state to, to then act and defend. Correct. The other big one I want to hit before we get to the invasion question, because I know everybody's just waiting to hear what you have to say about that, um, is SB 1884. And this mm-hmm. target it's the corruption of certain foreign nationals. So, so folks who are right. acting, and you can talk about the what 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 would be considered corrupt acts. Um, but there's things that we can do on this side of the border in order to go after these corrupt foreign nationals. Um, you know, heads of cartels or corrupt uh, right. politicians, and so on and so forth. Take, um, tell us a little bit about that law and what that would aim what it, would be a target. Yeah, 1884, which is which is a great bill, uh, and again one that we strongly support, uh, is actually patterned off of the, uh, what's called the Federal Engel List which has only been around for, uh, it's been in fact for three years, I believe, maybe three to four years. Uh, but the Engel list uh, is, is actually designed, it's, it's, it's an administrative list that's designed to penalize known corrupt foreign actors uh, who are involved in cartel activity, foreign corruption that affects the United States, but individuals for whom it's either not possible or desirable to, uh, to, to, to bring a prosecutorial case against, either because you don't have the, the, the requisite standard of proof or because you can't get to them or because there's political considerations, whatever. But if you put them on the Engel list and they're subject to a series of especially effectively personal sanctions uh, that actually do make a difference. Mm. Now, when the Engel list was created, they excluded Mexico from it which sounds crazy, right? <laughs> but they excluded Mexico from it again because there's sort of this DC-based policy sclerosis that's really unwilling to look the Mexican problem in the eye. Mm-hmm. So what we've proposed is that Texas uh, effectively, and this is what 1884 does, enact its own version of the Engel list that specifically does target. Now, the, now the, the bill is written uh, for, for any corrupt foreign actors, so we don't sure. single out Mexico. But the reality is that is that it is intended to address specifically Mexican dysfunction as well it should, uh, given our position, given our relationship with Mexico. And what it, what it will end up doing, uh, the hope is that it will target the Mexican elites without whom the cartel trade and culture and operations would not flourish within Mexico. The reality when you look at uh, Mexican criminal cartels is that they're not really against the Mexican state. They're kind of merged with it. They have this interaction with the Mexican state at every level. 
level, including, by the way, the president of Mexico himself, who has a more or less open alliance with the Sinaloan cartels right now. Uh, and so and so to get at these office holders, to get at these elites, really, uh, to our mind, uh, gets at the root of the issue in Mexico. And it won't solve the problem in Mexico, but what we can do is insulate ourselves. And 1884, I think, gets a long way to that. So this isn't just going after, you know, El Chapo might have a safe house here or whoever's in charge mm-hmm. of whatever cartel, and I don't even know the names anymore. But um, but if they have a safe house here, you know, obviously they can go after, um, uh, you know, things like that. But this was much broader. I mean, this is whoever right. El Chapo is is coordinating with, and they may be a business elite, or they may, you know, and they may have assets here and, and own property, or they may be doing, you know, commerce of some kind or maybe there's politicians and so on uh, who are also being paid off and they have certain what what other kinds of things can texas target i mean i keep using that you know uh seizing assets and things like that but there's other things that that this would allow uh texas to go after to make life miserable for for corrupt elites texas is such a popular place uh for for mexican nationals in particular to park capital and 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 now by the way a lot of it is legitimate uh of course you know again as a native south texan there would not be a middle class in a lot of south texas but for u.s mexico trade so we should be cognizant of that. But at the same time, to lose free access to Texas uh, and, uh, you know, you name it, Texas financial institutions, the ability to- The um, banks. The, 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 yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, gotcha. that, that That's a tremendous blow to, to lifestyle, which is actually something that a lot in this cohort mind a lot. I'll give you one example, if I may. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned El Chapo. So El Chapo's elderly mother, God bless her, is still alive. I'm sure she's very proud of how her boy turned out. Um, but uh, in 2020, the, uh, the, president of, the current president of Mexico, AMLO actually traveled uh, to meet her and to pay his respects to her because he has this alliance with with Chapo and the Chapitos and the cartel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a public event. He paid his respects to her. Now, so he would be a candidate, to my mind, of being on the 1884 list. His son, the son of the president of Mexico, has a very opulent place in Houston. That's the kind of thing that needs mm-hmm. to go away under uh, what we envision in 1884. Okay, and then, so that's a the the House in particular and the Texas Legislature has this package of bills that is targeted um, at, at at essentially the the idea that the the federal government is not coming to help us anytime soon, mm-hmm. um, and so we need the resources, we need the statutory authority, and we need the tactics really, and the uh, and the the uh, the ability to go after and really enforce not just what's going on in the crisis and all that at the border, um, but um, but but then to stop the corruption that's that's funding it really, and that's you know coordinating to get to to get so many people here illegally uh, not to mention the drugs and the fentanyl and all of that kind of stuff which is its whole other thing okay um, all right so now I want to get to the invasion question sure um, this obviously is is, uh, is something as you mentioned at the beginning of our show um, that maybe was perhaps outside the bounds of even you know of, of something to consider uh, even a few years ago or even last year uh, but now has become part of the central part of this debate Front and um, you have got and take me through I'm uh, you know if, if I'm getting some of this wrong, but you've got you know um, uh, county officials and mayors of cities, you know, writing their own letters saying we are under, you know, we are being invaded. Right. I mean, so they're you know, so they're saying even though they may or may not have the definitions right, they're trying to say, look, that we we need support from the federal government, we need support from the state government. We are in fact being invaded uh, uh, by by you know by Mexicans crossing the border, by the cartels, and so on. 
and so forth. But, however, um, I think it's really important, and I think this is some really um, fantastic work that we've done here at TPPF, is that, you know, a lot of people think invasion is just, you know, hundreds of thousands of people coming across the border all right. at once. It's just a lot of people coming across the border. That's an invasion. You know, like my house is getting invaded by ants because I've got, you know, ants coming through the floorboards right. or whatever. Yeah. That's that's not, I mean, that's sort of a common understanding, perhaps. But invasion is in the Constitution, and it is, uh, there's a very specific definition um, that, that we have researched, that we have looked at. Would you, to the best of your ability, kind of take people through when, what does the legal, sure. what is the, it's a legal term of art, uh, what does it mean in the law to be invaded? Yeah, no, great question. It's something that we started to look into last year because uh, obviously it's in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 10, states do have powers to fight invasion uh, without, uh, you know, without immediate, and I stress the word immediate, recourse to the federal government. There's no question but that the founders intended matters of war and peace to be under the ultimate authority of, of the federal government. Uh, in fact, I forget what the Federalist Paper is that talks about this, but it would be crazy uh, if, if, if the union were structured in any other way. That being said, as I mentioned earlier, the states are not left defenseless. And so what we did at the foundation here is uh, we conducted research basically to figure out what the original use cases were for Article 1, Section 10, for what the founders understood by invasion. And here's what we, here's what we ended up concluding. This is all in our published research. Anybody can go to TexasPolicy.com and look up the invasion paper and see what it, what it signifies there. Um, but basically, uh, an invasion, there's a few parts of this question. An invasion under, under the constitutional meaning requires two elements to it. It's not just entering the United States. So if I'm a, if I'm a migrant, I'm looking for work, I've got a brother in Portland who's going who's gonna, to, Portland, Texas or Portland, Oregon, I don't know which is better. Uh, Portland, but, Maine, uh, maybe? You know, Portland, Maine, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> there you go. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not invading the United States if I'm a migrant looking for work. And that actually really doesn't, I think there's an argument that, that, that you could make that that might qualitatively change given numbers, but personally, I find it to be a tenuous one. So, so entry is one requirement, but it's not a sufficient requirement. The other proportion, the other portion uh, that's required is enmity. So you have to enter the jurisdiction and you have to have enmity toward its sovereignty in order to constitute an invading force. Uh, and so that's where we start to look at, does the Mexican case meet the entry plus enmity requirement? And we believe it does, specifically because there are ample cases of Mexican cartels, Mexican traffickers who will, you know, take your pick, corrupt Texas public officials, open fire on Texas public officials. We had one case where Mexican uh, army um, uh, actually entered the United States and um, basically kidnapped for several hours a Texas National Guardsman that happened in 2018. And so you can go down these lists, and there's plenty of, of examples of entry plus enmity. And then there's kind of a, a larger meta question of whether the fentanyl crisis specifically qualifies as entry plus enmity. Uh, I would argue that it does, uh, given the nature of it, given a lot of kind of what the stated intent is behind it. But all that said, that, that's what constitutes an invasion. And when you think about what the founders intended, uh, what they were conceiving um, in entry plus enmity, it was a very interesting exchange that I heard, uh, I believe, on the HB20 um, uh, testimony in which one of the committee members at House State Affairs said, well, it, it, it can only be versus a... Um uh, versus a foreign state power. Uh, not true. Uh, right. A foreign state power is one example of, of invasion, but it can also be non-state or parastate actors. And so the founders would have thought uh, about pirates or mobs, for example, that would come and, and again, overthrow sovereignty, even on, on a local and temporary basis in an area. And so cartels, which actually are connected to the state uh, and and are you know nakedly piratical, uh, absolutely do meet uh, the not only the kind of the, the, the invasion definition, but also the envision actor uh, under the framework. So we think, right. you know, based upon that, 
it's a slam dunk case. So I want to dig into that second part of that because I think that's really the, the fascinating part that I think people really need to understand is that everyone kind of understands, you know, some sort of force or some kind of sort of large body of people uh, coming across into the state. So everybody understands mm-hmm. you have to cross in, into the border. But even this idea, you know, and it, it doesn't have to be just like you said, it doesn't have to be them coming after to overthrow Greg Abbott as the governor or, you know, pre- President Biden uh, in Washington, D.C. It simply has to be that they now claim territory, essentially, even if it's just for regular use. It doesn't necessarily have to be that they're taking over, you know, as part of the Mexican state areas along the border. But if they claim for their use, particularly on a regular basis, and they defend that land as part of, say, their drug trade or their or as their people are crossing uh, the border for, um, uh, you know, to push human trafficking going across a particular border, if they're constantly, you know, destroying people's property, if they are then threatening their farmers and ranchers and saying, you know, if you don't let me use your property, I'm going to shoot you and your livestock, or even if they're using uh, their powers of coercion. In other words, they corrupt, say, um, uh, Texas officials into forcing these ranchers right. and others to force them to to use their land in order for them to, to traffic their drugs and all of that. In effect, they are now in control of the land by either co- coercion, corruption, or even you know physical harm and force. That that then satisfies the definition. So it doesn't have to right. be again. It doesn't have to be you know taking over the government or or any of that. It just simply says you know we're gonna we're gonna run our drugs across your land and if you do anything about it we're going to shoot you or your family or we're going to you know corrupt the local government to enforce this you know to to allow us to do this that meets the definition and so and and that's clearly what's going on at the border it is it is i mean i can i can name uh, three texas counties right now hidalgo cameron and presidio where uh, you know within the past 10 to 15 years the sheriff's departments have been found to be essentially subcontractors to cartels that's an overthrow of sovereignty i can also uh, you know talk to you about a woman who was on the us side of the border um, uh, at a place that I know uh, very well. It's mm-hmm. uh, you know much of the Rio Grande you can essentially splash over. And uh, somebody splashed over from the south side and uh, told her to leave because it was time for her to go um, uh, because there was uh, there was cartel guys coming through uh, at that point and, and he needed her gone. Now, you may argue he was doing her a favor and that's probably technically true. But at the same time, ask yourself, uh, was at that moment, she, an American citizen on American soil, was she enjoying the full protection of the laws and the sovereignty of the United States? States, uh, I would say in no way. That's invasion. And when you add all that up and when you accrete it over years and years and thousands upon thousands of incidents, you get to a crisis to which the state must respond. And this, and I would add, this is not just an academic exercise of us, you know, you know, showing how smart we are to come up with the, you know, a definition of, or others to come up with the definition of invasion. It actually is very meaningful because if in fact there is an invasion going on at the, at the southern border, then it opens up new op- opportunities, not the right word, new legal authorities, new legal tools for the governor to use in order to enforce uh, border security laws that go directly to the constitutionality of Article 1, Section 10, like you said, and, and allow him then to to um, you know to, to basically defend the people of Texas based on the fact that there is in, that there is in fact an invasion. What are some of the tools perhaps that, that would be available to the governor um, if there were an invasion declaration? Yeah, well, well, without getting into too much uh, specificity, because all this is bounded by prudence and budget, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, are, which are kind of the two unknowable things in many ways. Uh, but in theory, and actually the foundation later this year, just for your listeners to know, uh, are, is going to have a research paper on state war power. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go very much in depth to this uh, in, in, in months to come. But the bottom line is that the, is that the state possesses uh, full defensive 
defensive war powers. I want to stress the defensive part. Mm -hmm. uh, and so now defensive can be considered to mean a lot of different things. And certainly from a historical standpoint, it's been used to mean a lot of different things. But it's to be used for defense. And while it is underway, while that defense is underway, there must be an appeal to Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. Because we, we, we do have to preserve the ultimate authority of the federal government, even if the federal government doesn't want to do its job. But we could fight the cartels on our side, on their side, something like that would would be even within our if the invasion of the declaration were to happen. In theory, it, you know, yeah. in order to protect the the border, it's not like we're in, you know going into Mexico in order to take over their land, all you know, so that we can you know take whatever you right. Know, right is there. The the idea would be then we would be able to have operations, perhaps even in on the Mexico side, um, with and, or without their support, because we were able because what we're trying to do is defend uh, defend our border and protect our communities. In theory, uh, now I want to make clear, I don't think that's prudentially necessary right now, uh, right. but 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 in theory, that is correct. And there are certainly plenty of examples from Texas history in which exactly that kind of thing happened. Mm -hmm. uh, so we just need to be open to it. And I think I think one thing that we need to understand, uh, particularly with the political dynamics in Mexico is, uh, and this is something that I've said many times, especially to federal policymakers and staffers on Capitol Hill, that if you just put the option on the table, it's going to have beneficial effects on the Mexican side. In no way does the Mexican state and the Mexican regime is currently constituted want the Americans anywhere near their operations because they know that you know pulling on these threads is going to spool a lot of things that mm -hmm. they really don't want exposed. And so my guess is that, um, uh, and I think President Trump demonstrated this uh, a little bit obliquely, is that if you exhibit a willingness to get tough, that a lot of positive things are going to happen on the southern side without us having to set foot there. Awesome. Well, Josh, well, thank you so much for being on The Breakdown. Um, obviously, this number one issue, a lot of these really critical issues, we see a lot of action happening in the House. We've got some companion bills going on in the Senate. Uh, so we will keep a very close eye on this, obviously, because it's the number one issue for Texans. Um, and, and, and we're starting to see the Texas policymakers make this a real uh, priority for them uh, in order to protect our communities and all over Texas, not just even at the border, but all over Texas. So um, thank you for helping us break down these bills today. Thank you so much for being on. Thanks, Brian. And thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.